before I read our passage, I want to bring us up to speed on where we are in John's narrative. Uh, you probably remember from the book of John early on, John the Baptist pointed people, including his own followers, to begin to follow Jesus. In chapter 2, he, Jesus attended a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and he did that with his earliest disciples. And John remarks for us that in that place, he performed what John calls his first sign. And Jesus' first sign was changing water into wine at a wedding. And then you probably remember that Jesus went to Jerusalem, and when he was in Jerusalem, he, he raised a ruckus, right? He cleansed the temple, turned over tables, He met with Nicodemus, talked about what it means to have eternal life. And then finally, he went to Samaria where he met the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at how he shared the gospel with her and how salvation came to not only her, but to her whole people group in this village where she lived. These people that the Jews had already written off and said, well, they'll never get salvation. And so this morning marks the return of Jesus to Galilee after he sort of, you might think of what he's done as a circuit. He's completed this circuit now and he finds himself coming back to Cana where his first miracle took place. And so that's where our reading this morning begins in John four forty-six. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have in your storehouses all the knowledge of Christ that we could ever need. We ask you to open the storehouses to us and rain down the blessings of Jesus. Help us today. We ask it because we are weary and we are weak and don't have strength in ourselves. It has to come from you through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may find it hard to believe that this much time has passed since the wedding at Cana But it was actually September when we looked at the wedding of Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. And we simply noted that this was the location of Jesus's first miracle in John's gospel. This moment of joy 
where what is Jesus communicating other than to say, my ministry will be a ministry of joy. Look at the wine that I'm bringing, this wine that represents joy, and I'm going to bring this to you. This is what my ministry is all about. And the interesting thing, though, is that not only does he bring joy, but he ministers at that moment in the context of joy. It's really difficult to think in your life about happier occasions than a wedding. There is, are very few moments in people's lives, except perhaps the birth of a child, when we get more enthusiastic, when we get more excited about sharing in other people's happiness and other people's joy that they have in their lives. And so that's the context in which Jesus brings his first miracle here, is the context of joy, this context of wedding. Jesus belongs here at this time of joy. And yet this week, he returns to Cana, and when he comes back, the occasion is very different. Um, This miracle in Cana this time is not in the context of joy and celebration. It's in the context of sorrow and misery. And John tells us that this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So see what Jesus does. He draws a line in this verse right here. He draws a line between that first miracle in the time of joy and this miracle in a time of sorrow. And notice this. These these two events are so different from each other. And yet, isn't it so true that Jesus equally belongs at both occasions? Jesus belongs in the time of joy. And Jesus belongs in the time of sorrow. He belongs in both occasions. This is what Archibald Campbell says. He says, Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. He has a place in all circumstances. If we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. If we call on him in our times of sorrow, anxiety, or bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and a joy that is not of this world. So just remember that, that Jesus belongs in both occasions. Jesus is not just for the happy, slappy, clappy occasions. He is also there in our very low times as well. And the second Cana sign, in this moment, Jesus confronts something that he didn't have to the last time. And that thing that he's confronting is this issue of spectating and unbelief, which is really the forefront of the problem in this situation. In fact, our passage forces us to reckon with this idea of faith, what faith really means, and what the the nature of faith actually is. We need to have a healthy understanding of what faith means. Because if we don't, we're going to have an overly simplified understanding of what faith is. And if we're not careful, we'll have an overly rationalistic understanding of what faith is. And both of those things are wrong, according to Scripture. And so, so Jesus does three things that draw us toward a deeper knowledge of the faith Jesus demands. Jesus reprimands the gawkers, He requires faith, and he rescues a household. So he reprimands gawkers, he requires faith, and he rescues a household. We'll see all of those this morning. First, we see that Jesus reprimands gawkers. Um, It's sort of startling the way this happens. He comes to Galilee. This official comes to Jesus asking him, would you heal my son? Now, we know Jesus, and we sort of feel like we have an idea how Jesus is going to respond in this moment. We know Jesus is sweet. We know he's tender. We know that he's kind. Of course, Jesus will come. And then he makes this startling statement. It's almost an accusation. He says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So it almost sounds really harsh to us as we're hearing this. This is a man whose son is dying. 
Now, I actually am quite convinced as I've looked at this passage that I don't think this is an accusation against the man personally. And I'll give you one reason why in the Greek. In the Greek, he doesn't say you, as in you, man, you person that's talking to me. In the Greek, Jesus actually uses the word, the plural version of you, the you all. And so uh, one of the things, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a Yankee, you know, I'm a northerner and, and I grew up in Kansas. And when I was in school, though, here's the thing. This is the this is how, you know, Kansas is like in between worlds because everybody says y'all, everybody says y'all. But the teachers always tell you y'all isn't a word. Um, so we're all doing it. We're all saying it. We're all speaking it. And we all feel very guilty all the time. Kansans always apologize for saying y'all. Um, so it's good to come down here and I can say y'all and nobody, you know, people probably think I'm acting. No, this is how Kansans talk. We just feel guilty about it is all. But actually, I try to point this out to my kids. You don't have to feel bad about saying y'all because the Greek has the word for y'all. And we apparently don't have that word in the English language. And so all over the, 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 the New Testament, people are saying y'all this, y'all that, y'all do this, y'all do that, y'all should do this. And then we make our English translations and we just set, change it to you. So you never know if you're talking to one person or many people. And so anyway, just let me encourage y'all to just keep saying y'all. It's fine. Um, somebody made a y'all Bible on the internet. Uh, they took the ESV, and, and every time the Greek uses a plural you, they changed it to y'all. I don't know why it reads so hilarious, but it's correct. It is, it is grammatically correct. So, so please do indulge yourselves and uh, get the y'all Bible. Someone needs to sell it. But, but anyway, Jesus, in essence, Jesus looks at them, and I'm going to give you my y'all translation of this verse so you kind of have an idea of what Jesus is saying. He says, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. And that's what Jesus says to this, to this man. And he says it not just to the man, I think. He's saying it to all of these people in Galilee. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying people around here don't really believe they want a show. Jesus is complaining a little bit. You just want a show. And the problem is Jesus sees it as not really signs. Signs aren't bad. If signs were bad, Jesus wouldn't give signs. God uses signs constantly in the ministry of Jesus and and the apostles. Signs are integral to what he does in the New Testament. The problem here is these people didn't worship him as a savior. They saw him as a miracle worker. And those are not the same things. Um, Rick Phillips says it this way. He says they were consumers, not worshipers. These people were coming to Jesus as consumers. They weren't coming to him to worship him. Now think of the shock that this moment returning to Galilee would be for Jesus. Uh, Remember, he he experiences his life one moment at a time, just as we do. Even though he is the God of heaven and earth, he still learns in a linear fashion. He still learns by speaking, observing with his eyes, listening. And so when he comes into Galilee, what does he see but a bunch of people looking for signs? Think of where he just was. He came from Samaria. This place where the people are supposedly so messed up religiously, where they're so deranged that the the Jews won't have anything to do with them. And yet think of this. He did no sign. He did no signs in Samaria. He did no miracles in Samaria. 
And yet he was met with belief. The Samaritans believed without seeing signs. And then he comes to Galilee, this place that's supposedly so much superior religiously, and he finds the opposite mindset. Where are the miracles? Where are the signs? Do some tricks for us, Jesus. He had just been ministering to people who didn't need any signs and wonders. Now, let me be very clear. There is a a misunderstanding among some people when it comes to the subject of faith. If you listen to many people today talk about faith, it's usually people from the outside saying that they think they know what faith is and then talking about it as if they know what it is. They make it sound as though faith is the opposite of fact, as though faith and fact are against each other, as if they're always in battle with each other. And sometimes you just have to choose to be irrational. And they, they betray faith as something where it's just a blind leap if you, for any time that you can't see. And that is a terrible misunderstanding of the nature of faith. Uh, and we'll see this in a moment. Faith is informed trust. It is not blind assent. See, the problem here is not that the people of Cana want Jesus to prove he is who he says he is. That is not the problem. He doesn't mind doing it. We're going to see in a few weeks, a passage where Jesus is more than happy to lay the evidence for who he is out for people. Jesus is not opposed to evidence. You see, evidence isn't really the problem. Jesus is happy to produce it for his claims when he knows his audience is going to receive what he says with goodwill. But the reality is evidence is not the problem. The real problem is a heart issue. It's not a knowledge issue. It's not an information issue. You see, without the right heart attitude, we won't rightly appreciate the evidence. Jesus can do miracles. He has the Holy Spirit. He's able to do it. He can do them right here. He can do them right now. The problem is why they want to see them. See, the miracles here, the people view them as an end in themselves, not as a way for the people of Cana to know that Jesus is the Messiah, to discover who he is, to believe in him for what he believed, for who he is. Um... When I was in junior high, one of my best friends was, a, was double-jointed in his elbows and in his shoulders. Uh, I think he was, like, missing parts. And so he could do really wild things with his arms. Like, he could wrap, he could turn his shoulder, like, outside and then, like, put him behind his back. And, uh, and then he could, like, wrap his arms around himself. And the kids in class called him Gumby. And he could just do these crazy moves. Uh, And the kids would gather around and they would say, hey, kid, do that thing. And he would do it. He would indulge them. He'd do the trick, you know, and everyone would go, ooh, gross. And then they would bully him and call him Gumby and make fun of him and and then walk away. And then every time the kids, they'd go, oh, come over here, come over here, do that arm thing again, do that arm thing again. And he'd come over and they would do it. And sure enough. He, they would make fun of him. They'd, he'd, they'd, they'd call him Gumby again, and they'd, and they'd mock him, and they wouldn't want to be his friends. These, these kids were not hanging out with him after school. And I remember at one point, I don't remember how long it was afterwards, but there was a point where they said, hey, hey come over here, come over and do that arm thing again. Show these kids this, that arm thing. And he refused to do it. He wouldn't do the arm trick anymore. And it was because they weren't interested in him. They weren't interested in knowing him. They weren't interested in being his friends. He was actually a really lonely kid. And after a while, he knew that they didn't want to be his friends. They didn't want to know him. And so he wouldn't do the trick for him anymore. And I sort of think 
And that there's something of that here with Jesus. It's not that Jesus is lonely and needy. They want to see the signs. They want to see what he can do. They probably find it exciting to watch him do these things, but they don't seem to want to know him. They don't want to follow the signs where they lead, you see. And that's the purpose of the signs, to lead them to Jesus. So what good is evidence if you're not going to follow it where it leads? Jesus is not willing to be their experiment, their plaything, their circus performer. That is not why he does miracles. And he challenges this man with his words. He challenges him here. He basically says to him, believe in me without the signs. Believe in me without seeing me do a miracle. Believe in me like those Samaritans did. Mark Johnston summarizes the situation very well here, I think. He he says, Jesus is not interested in satisfying crowds who want to be entertained. He is interested in sinners who feel their need and are prepared to take him at his word. See, the challenge here for us is this. It is not that we operate on blind faith, as we'll see in a moment. That's not what Jesus asks for. The challenge is that we really want to know Jesus and not just the benefits that he gives. Are we just here for what Jesus gives us or are we here for Jesus himself? What about you? Do you you want Jesus or are you just interested in what Jesus gives, right? Forgiveness without a savior. Glory without a cross. Where is your heart? What drives you? What motivates you? Why are you here? See, Jesus pushes this man and he pushes us toward himself, not his benefits. You gain benefits from knowing Christ. You gain uh, the gift of salvation from knowing Christ. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to me personally. And that's what Jesus does. He reprimands gawkers here this morning. He's not here to amuse you. He's here to be your savior. Now, second this morning, after Jesus challenges the gawkers, he requires faith. We, we, we're sort of left with this moment after Jesus says what he does. How will this man respond to what Jesus says? How will he respond to this challenge that Jesus gives? Well, we find the answer. The official says, sir, come down before my child dies. He gets right to it. He says, the most important thing here to me is what happens to my child. But I want you to think of the faith that this man has to have at this moment. Because he really seems to believe without seeing a sign, right? He hasn't seen Jesus do a miracle. He believes that Jesus can do this. That Jesus can heal his child. In fact, we know that he does believe this because in verse 50, if you're you're looking at the text at least, if you look in verse 50, Jesus doesn't come down. Jesus doesn't do what this man asks. There is no compliance here from Jesus. He says, go, your son will live. So Jesus says, I'm not going to do it the way that you ask. I'm going to heal him in my own way. And then John tells us, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He never sees the result before he believes, right? He leaves the place, and John tells us he believed the word that Jesus had spoken. So the man believes Jesus' word without seeing the sign. He gets no sign. Exactly what he said before, 
believing without seeing the sign, and now here he is, he's putting it into practice with this man. He sends the man away, there's no sign. Now maybe you're tempted at this point to say, see, faith is all about blind trust. See, faith is for people who are ignorant and people who are helpless. That's who faith is for. But I want you to notice this man's faith is not blind faith. Instead, this man's faith is reasonable. He has reasons for believing Jesus and believing that this child will be healed. Right? At this point, you need to think about the nature of faith because it's very important that we dispel the very common myths or at least misunderstandings that I think we may have about faith and what it is. Martin Luther said that faith had three parts to it. It had information, assent, and commitment. But think about what he's saying at the very core of where this begins. Faith begins with information, said Luther. It doesn't begin with ignorance. It doesn't begin with confusion. It begins with information. It begins with the mind. Faith begins with the mind and what we know and what we believe. Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist. And years ago, he said that he believed that religious people existed because he said there are just people out there who have a psychological or emotional fear of living in an empty universe. And so he said, if you're a weak-minded person who can't handle the darkness of the universe, the emptiness of the universe, then that's why you believe in God, because you just have to cope with the emptiness that's out there. And then if you asked Russell, well, he would say that people believe in God primarily for emotional reasons, in other words. Now, here's the funny thing. You could argue just as easily that Russell was an atheist because he feared living in a universe with a creator in it. You see, the rhetoric goes both ways. Somebody's afraid of something here, right? And Russell thought this because he believed religious people could not possibly have any good reasons for believing. It must just be psychological weakness on the part of people. And we have to acknowledge there are Christians who do have a very simple faith. They inherited the faith. They, they perhaps didn't think much about it. Um, they haven't considered very much whether it's true. And they can be sort of content with the simplicity of that kind of worldview. I would just say that such approaches to faith don't mean that there are no arguments. It just proves that there are some people who aren't interested in the arguments, which is not the same thing as there being no arguments. I grew up in that kind of church as a kid. The people in the church had faith, but I never, ever remember hearing anybody tell me why I should believe or giving me reasons why I should believe that the Bible was true. Never, ever. I had to find all those answers on my own, through my own study, through my own reading. I had to beg my parents to buy me books, things like that, because that just wasn't talked about. People didn't even want to acknowledge the the fact that there are human beings out there who don't think that it's true. Now, some people do think that faith means putting your hands over your eyes, putting your hands over your ears, ignoring facts, ignoring reality, living in a fantasy. They think that faith is is seeing the world the way you wish that it was. But that is not faith. That is delusion. And they are not the same things. Faith is informed trust. How does faith work in this passage? In verse 39, it says the people of Samaria believed because of the woman's testimony. So this woman came to them, and she came to them with an argument. She came to them with a message. She came to them with evidence. And then in verse 41, Jesus spoke, and the text tells us that the people believed because of Jesus' words. So think about this. 
In both cases, there's nothing blind going on here at all. They, are, they see a very real demonstrable change in the woman's life. She had met Jesus. They had reasons to believe that she knew what she was talking about. And so faith is not blind trust. Faith is reasonable, earned trust. We live by this kind of faith every day. We, we live by this kind of faith to one degree or another all the time. Think about your car. Uh, I think you all got here in a car. You all got here in some kind of vehicle this morning. It's a rainy morning. This doesn't seem like the right, right day for a, a waltz to church. Um, you got into that car and you believed that car would get you here. Why did you believe that? Well, you believe that because it's reasonable, right? As far as you can tell, everything is great. Uh, you haven't heard any weird knocking sounds. You didn't hear smoke. You didn't see smoke uh, pouring out of your tailpipe. Uh, there were no gerbils rattling around in the, the motor, as far as you could tell. Um, maybe you took your car to get the oil changed, and the mechanic checked all the fluid levels and looked for anything weird the last time you were there. Um, maybe if you know something about cars, maybe you even took a look for yourself. But, you know... There are parts of your cars that you can't see. Uh, I can't prove to you 100% that all the pistons in my engine are firing correctly. Um, and yet I didn't check it when I got in my car today. Why is that? It's because I have faith. But, but my faith isn't an ignorant faith. It's, based, it's an informed faith. It's based on evidence. It's based on facts. It's based on things that I can observe. God does not demand that people check their brain at the door when they walk into church or when they start considering the claims of Scripture. You drive on bridges and overpasses every day, I think. Maybe not every day, but you drive on a lot of bridges. You drive on a lot of overpasses. And I guarantee you the only reason that you're willing to, 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 to do that is because you have faith in the engineers who designed those bridges. You have faith in the people at the Department of Transportation who are supposed to check the bridges. And you have faith in the bridge itself. Why would you say that driving, would you say that driving on, your, on bridges is an act of blind faith? I, I don't think you would. I don't think that we live that way. Faith in Jesus is that kind of faith. It is reasonable faith. There is an intellectual element to it, but it also moves into the heart and it shows up in our daily lives, right? It changes the way we live. Um, you don't just believe that bridges are safe. You also drive on them. Have you put your faith into action? That reasonable faith that you have, has it shown up in the way that you live? Has it shown up in your life? Is your life showing that you believe what you say you believe? This man has a reasonable trust in Jesus. He has faith. He heard the reports of him. He heard news that this man has healed people before. He believes their testimony. This doesn't seem like a lie to him. He's checked the information out enough that he doesn't need to see it with his own eyes to know that this healing is real. This man puts his faith into action. What does he do? He doesn't drag Jesus there anyway. He takes his answer for what it is and says, okay, I believe. John says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Think about this. The final moments of a person's life as a family member, as a loved one, you want to be there. This man, he says, my son is at death's door. In other words, he's taking a chance that while he's gone, his son might actually die. And yet he leaves and says, I'm going to go find Jesus. He would rather chance not being there for his son's death than to go without 
calling upon Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He rebukes the gawkers, but he also requires faith. He requires faith of this man. And this man has it in verse 50. And there's a third thing that Jesus does here. And you see it in verse 53. He rescues a household. In verse 50, Jesus told this man his son would live. The man goes on his way. He heads home. He finds out when his servant tells him that his son is recovering. He figures out the timing. And he realizes that this happened at the same time that Jesus spoke. Verse 53, for the second time, the passage says, he himself believed. I want you to see this feature of faith. It can increase. Faith can increase. See, he already believed in verse 50 after Jesus spoke. And then once the thing Jesus told him actually happened, his faith increased even more. And so I want you to see today, if you're, if you're a Christian, I want you to see this, that with the Spirit's help in your life, there will be things that you see and that you learn and that you experience that will tend to increase your faith. There are experiences that you will have where you'll see the way God cared for you. You'll see that the, the things that are in the Bible will amplify your faith as well. Um, I want you to see this, that even just understanding your Bible better will increase your faith. I'll give you this example because for me, I have sensed my own faith growing because of this. Um, You know, I preach twice a week. I write two sermons a week and then I preach two sermons a week. And then I also prepare Sunday school lesson on Sunday mornings and then teach on Wednesday nights as well. And so I'm doing a lot of work in the Bible. And then at the same time, I'm also teaching three times a week at Bellhaven on Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings for an hour. And one of the things that happens is when you spend a lot of time in the Bible and when you spend a lot of time teaching the Bible, you start to see the things that maybe you sort of take for granted in other times and other places. So, for example, the thing that I have seen and the thing that I have started to really appreciate more than anything else is that in the Old Testament, there's this one theme running through the entire book. All 39 books of the Old Testament, you have this one theme, God's commitment to keep his promise to Abraham. And that runs through the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the, way, all the way to Malachi. And then when the New Testament comes along, what happens? They pick up the exact same thread and keep going with it. And the thing that I, that's, that's happened to me, at least, is when I teach through these Old Testament books and I get to each book, one of the things I always try to do is point out how God is keeping this one core promise to keep the covenant. And it's in every book of the Old Testament. Even though you've got writers from about a 1,400-year range, from 1,400 to about 400 B.C., all of them writing from different backgrounds. Some of them are educated. Some of them have never been in a a class in their life. Some of them just are shepherds. Uh, You have people from all kinds of backgrounds over a 1,000-year period, and they're all writing with the same core message. And for me, as I read the Old Testament, I grow in my faith. I actually believe more easily and more readily because I think to myself, there is no man who could arrange all of this. There is no man who could sit down and get a group together and say, all right, let's make this happen. Let's get this one message to go through all of these books. How would you even start on a project like that? Christian, I want you to see this with the Spirit's help in your life. Your faith can increase. 
And I just notice this, that my faith grows because I keep marveling at the consistency and perfection of the Bible. And the closer I look, the more I marvel and the more easily I find it to trust. Now, I'm not interested in talking about myself. What I want you to see for yourself is this can be yours too. This growing faith, this growing trust that increases more and more. This is something you can have for yourself, but you have to avail yourself of the Bible. You have to hear it preached as often as you can. You have to read it for yourself and see it for yourself as much as you possibly can. Or you're going to constantly find yourself wondering, why is my faith so weak? Why do I feel so shaky in the Christian life? Meanwhile, you maybe hear the Bible once. Maybe you have weeks where you don't hear it at all. Um, As I get older, it's the consistency and coherence of the Bible that leaves me the most persuaded. Now, I still believe, based on the evidence, I still believe on the historical evidence. I know that that all of these things are true, and I feel more confident of that every day than ever before. But man, knowing the Bible has been the best way for me to become more confident in my faith. Faith is something that can grow. Christian, keep finding ways to grow. Keep seeking ways to be healthier, to have a stronger faith, to have a more robust faith. Read, be curious, grow. Be like this man who believed and then he went home and he believed even more as he found more reasons to believe. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for each and every person in this room. This is an interesting passage because on the one hand, it seems like a by-the-books healing. It's a by-the-books healing. Jesus healed the, the boy. And on the other hand, it's a picture of a man of faith who grows in his faith by exercising his faith. But there's something else here, though, and, and I, I want you to see this. It sticks out very, very profoundly. And it's just at the very end of the passage. And I don't want you to miss it. It's in verse 53. Verse 53 says, He himself believed and all his household. This is what I want you to see as we close this morning. True faith in Christ doesn't begin and end with us. This is not about you and your little world. Right? Real saving faith is not just a private matter that's between you and God. The faith that Jesus gives his people has an impact on the world around us. Each of our worlds are larger or smaller to a certain degree, but think about this. Faith in Christ sends out expanding concentric circles of influence around us. See, see in this case, the head of the household returns home. He tells them what he's seen. He tells them what he's heard. And again, notice, not blind faith. The family sees the evidence. They hear their father's testimony. They see the healing of his son. They see the father's changed life. He believes now and he can't keep it to himself. And shame on him if he did. This is so important to the Lord. He intends for, it, for us to be changed by his word, but he also expects our family, our community, our state, and our nation to be changed by what's happening in our lives, not by blind faith, not by wishing and hoping, but by real, true, reasonable trust in the one who has shown us that we can trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, this room is filled with people, all of whom are 
at their own own place in life, living with their own struggles and their own problems and challenges and difficulties. For some, they're inclined to believe, but they might struggle with questions of one sort or another. They need you to help their unbelief, God. For others, they know and love you, they believe in you, but they yearn to be like this official in the passage who believed, but then grew to believe in you even more. And there could even be skeptics here, Lord. I pray that you would show them that what you ask of them is not a blind leap, but a reasonable step into light and truth, not ignorance and darkness. Would you help us to see? Would you help us to believe? And would you help our unbelief? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.